to join me in Romans chapter 13. We'll get there in just a few moments. During Passion Week, as uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem for that last Passover, when he would offer himself once for all as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of his people, the animosity and the malice of the religious leaders was at a fever pitch. Time and again, they came to Jesus during the course of that week, and they sought to trap him in his words in order to try to find some grounds by which to deliver him over to death. And time and again, the wisdom of Jesus proved too great a match for them, and they went away empty-handed. One such occasion is recorded in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, where Mark records that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And with this, the leaders thought they had him. They thought they had Jesus impaled upon the horns of a dilemma, leaving him no way of escape. Their question focused upon the radically unpopular issue of Roman taxation. The tax in question was the imperial poll tax, which had been instituted in the year 6 AD. And in this tax, according to one commentator, every adult male had to pay, quote, just for the privilege of existing. And it could only be paid with a Roman denarius. Now, the denarius was a silver coin, roughly equivalent to a day's wage in Palestine. On the one side, it bore the image of Tiberius Caesar, with the inscription in Latin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side was the image of Tiberius's mother, with the inscription Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. So not only did the Jews resent having to pay the tax to the Romans, they resented the fact that they had to pay it with an idolatrous Roman coin. So the dilemma worked like this. If Jesus said, yes, it is lawful for you to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees were going to turn right around and they were going to herald to the nation that Jesus was a traitor who was in league with the Romans. But if Jesus said, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians would go and report him to the Roman officials who didn't take kindly to insurrectionists who encouraged rebellion against the state. Either way, Jesus turned, so they thought, he would be cornered. But knowing their hypocrisy, Mark writes, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now implicit in Jesus's answer is a principle that has tremendous bearing upon our text for this morning. In his reply, Jesus affirmed the legitimate authority of the state, in his case Rome, and of its ruler, who was Caesar. And he affirmed the obligation of all to render obedience to that authority, in this case, by the paying of the poll tax. 
Now, Protestants have long held to what is known as the two kingdoms doctrine, which says that God exercises his authority upon the earth by means of two kingdoms. On the one hand, there's the kingdom of God, which on earth is the church by which he governs his saints. And on the other, the various kingdoms of this world, which is the state by which he governs all mankind. Luther called the church and the state the right hand and the left hand of God, respectively. A Christian is a citizen of both kingdoms simultaneously. The kingdom of God and whatever earthly kingdom, by God's providence, he lives in. And the Christian is therefore subject to both rulers, to Christ and to Caesar, so to speak. And as we shall see this morning... Our obedience to the one is inseparable from our obedience to the other. You cannot render to God that which is God's unless you render to Caesar that which legitimately belongs to Caesar. Why? Because God is the one who has put Caesar in authority over you. Now, as we turn to Romans 13, I want to remind you as we begin of the theme that Paul has been developing since the beginning of Romans 12. It colors our interpretation of all of Romans 12 to the end of chapter 15. There in verses 1 to 2, Paul called the church to a radical inside-out transformation, to a metamorphosis in which... The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to give us the mind of God that we may know the will of God and so live our lives as an offering of God as befits the mercies of God which are ours through the Son of God. The remainder of Romans, then, is dedicated to fleshing out what this transformed, spirit-wrought life looks like in everyday actual practice. So we now come to Romans 13... And Paul's exhortation concerning Christians and the governing authorities. Evidently then, Paul considered our relationship to the governing authorities to be a part of this transformation. Evidently, Paul thought the Christian's relationship to the government ought to be different for having the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit within him. So the question we're going to seek to answer over the next two weeks is, what does spiritually transformed citizenship look like? How is your relationship to the local, state, and federal authorities whom God has placed over you different for being born again? From Romans 13, 1 to 7, we're going to seek an answer to that question by asking three sub-questions. First, what is the legitimate God-ordained role of government? Second, what is the responsibility of the Christian citizen to that government? And third, is there ever a time when Christians should resist governmental authority? We'll cover the first question this week, save the second and third for next week. Now, while it is not Paul's main point in this passage, Paul's main point in this passage is to call Christian citizens to submit to the governing authorities. So while it's not his main point, this passage does give us insight into Paul's view of the roles and responsibilities of government. We find these in the reasons that Paul gives for why Christians should submit to the governing authorities. So let me read verses 1 through 4 
once more. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, before we can talk about the role of human government in the plan of God, I think two clarifications need to be made. First, is Paul saying that every governing authority has been appointed by God? Even the evil ones. Even Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Amin and Hussein and the like. Yes, that is what Paul is saying. In fact, he says it twice. Once positively and once negatively in verse 1. The negative, there is no authority except from God. None. And the positive, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Every one of them. Now, Paul is certainly not alone in this contention. All of the biblical writers who deal with this issue affirm the same thing. For example, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, while Nebuchadnezzar was still a violent pagan king, by the way, Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And later in Daniel 4.17, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The Lord said to Jeremiah, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all of these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. You see God moving rulers around on the chessboard of the world like pawns. Isaiah said to Israel, Who stirred up one from the rest, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And even Jesus When he stood in silence before Pilate and Pilate in frustration said, you won't speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him and said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you by God. So yes, we have to say every ruler, the godly and the pagan, the righteous and the wicked has been appointed by God. You cannot pick and choose which events you will attribute to God's sovereignty and which events you will attribute to 
chance or fate or free will or whatever cause you may. As Daniel said unequivocally, God rules over the kingdom of men and he gives authority to whomever he wills. But does this mean that God approves of the evil of wicked rulers? Certainly not. Cyrus the Persian, for instance, was raised up by God for the good of his people. He was anointed by God to release his people Israel from their Babylonian captivity. Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 7. Sometimes God raises up rulers for the good of a people in order to be a blessing to them, like Cyrus. And on the other hand, sometimes God raises up rulers for the judgment of a people in order to exercise his wrath upon them, like the kings of Babylon, whom God also raised up in order to put his people into subjection and send them off into exile. Every succession of monarchs, every coup d'etat, every election, every change in government occurs by God's sovereign hand in accordance with God's sovereign plan. Many times that plan is blessing. It's a gift of God's common grace. But sometimes that plan is judgment. God's ways and his plans are inscrutable. In every one thing that he does, he's doing a thousand other things. So yes, God appoints every ruler and every authority that exists. But no, that appointment is not always for blessing. When Paul says that the one in authority is God's servant for your good, in verse 4, he's speaking generally and ideally. There are some times when a ruler does not rule. For our good. There is a time to resist. There is a time to not submit to governing authorities. And we'll deal with that question in full next week, but I'll just give you a little glimpse today. When the governing authority ceases to act as God's servant for your good, that is when he abdicates his God given responsibility as a minister of God's justice and peace, then he is to be resisted. But. I'm convinced that Paul and the rest of the biblical writers give those rulers a wide swath within which they define good. You need to remember that it was Caesar to whom Jesus commanded us to pay taxes, and it was Nero of whom Paul told the Romans to submit. So with those two clarifications in mind, yes, God raises up every ruler, the good and the evil. But no, that raising up of a ruler is not always for the blessing of mankind. It is at times for the judgment of mankind. Let's move into the question of the morning. What then is the God-ordained role of human government? Paul answers this question in two ways. He states that role in a positive way and a negative way in verse 4. He says, for he, that is the ruler, the governing authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So you see the two roles of government stated there very clearly. On the one hand, to promote the good. On the other hand, to punish the evil. The ruler 
And Paul's words here could, I think, apply to any governing authority at any level of government, whether local or state or federal. That ruler is God's servant or minister to you for good and God's servant or minister to execute wrath upon the one who does evil. God has appointed human government via government governing authorities to be his instrument through which he both blesses humanity with the gifts of his common grace and the instrument through which he punishes the wicked and so restrains human sin in a fallen human society and preserves that society and even causes it to flourish, which is also a gift of his common grace. So let's look a little closer at both of those legitimate God-ordained roles of human government. First, to promote the good. What are the common graces of God that come to humanity through the means of human government? I think the most elegant statement ever written on the role and the responsibility of government comes from the framers of the United States Constitution. Men who thought long and hard about what a government was supposed to be and to do. That is, it's God-ordained function. We read in the preamble to the Constitution, which you should have memorized in fifth grade. And I I really contemplated giving you a little quiz and having us kind of recite it together. But I'm going to let you off the hook this week, next week maybe. We the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union... Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. And from this, I think we can glean four basic God-ordained responsibilities of government which line up with those Two broad responsibilities that we find in Romans chapter 13. Four gifts of common grace which God bestows through government. Number one, God gave government to set parameters on human behavior. Governments establish laws which regulate what its citizens should and should not do. Now, as Americans, we tend to have a a certain rebellious streak in us. Indeed, our nation was born out of rebellion. We have within us this innate sense of independence that bristles at the idea that we need government to tell us how to live. And I do think that the beauty of the U.S. Constitution is that it envisioned what I would consider a minimalist view of government designed specifically to restrict government overreach and to protect the liberty of private citizens. Yet it still granted to the federal government the power to enact and enforce laws to regulate the conduct of its citizens. Because the fact remains that after the fall, men and women as a whole are incapable of regulating their own behavior. Now, it's true that God has inscribed upon the mind and the conscience of all men his moral law, this sense of divine justice, of right and wrong. And most men, though certainly not all, generally abide by the dictates of their conscience, though certainly not all the time. The fact is that all of us, 
if left to ourselves, will tend inevitably towards whatever is in our own self-interest, regardless of the cost to others. Left to ourselves, we will violate our consciences in our own self-interests. But when men come together to form a government, they have historically, usually, but not always, been inclined to enact laws that are essentially in keeping with God's moral law that is inscribed upon the consciences of men who are made in his image. That's why there is a certain uniformity of, uh, in the legal codes from culture to culture, nation to nation, and age to age. In every state, in every age, it is unlawful to steal or to kill, or to violate covenants, or to cheat in business, and so on and so forth. Without government, there would be no rule of law. There would be only the rule of power. In a society without laws and law enforcement, men would behave as animals, and society would be ruled by the principle of the survival of the fittest. Might would determine right. The powerful would oppress the weak. The rich would oppress the poor. The majority would oppress the minority. People are inherently driven by self-interest. Indeed, selfishness is of the very essence of sin. So what laws and law enforcement does is to turn our innate self-interest toward the common good. Let me give you an example. Speed limits exist to protect public safety. Were there no speed limits, people would drive at whatever speed was in their self-interest. If they were late to work, if they were late to an appointment, if they just got a kick out of driving fast, then they would fly through neighborhoods where children are playing. They would fly through intersections where people were crossing. But a law combined with the threat of punishment curbs that danger by presenting an alternative that is to their greater self-interest. Namely, most people would rather be late to work than to have to pay a $150 fine. So they drive at a safe rate of speed. Why? Because they're concerned about the safety of their fellow citizens? No. Out of self-interest. So God regulates, sets parameters for the behavior of fallen human beings by means of human government in order to ensure a measure of order, safety, peace, and equality, even in fallen human society. Second, God gave government to protect its citizens from threats both foreign and domestic. God gave government for the protection of its citizens, or as The framers of the Constitution referred to it to provide for the common defense. Some governments, some groups, are are so corrupted by evil that they become a grave threat to the safety, tranquility, prosperity, and liberty of their own nation or surrounding nations. 
like a number of aggressive regimes throughout history from Alexander and the Greeks to the Caesars and the Romans to uh, Attila the Hun to Genghis Khan and the Mongol horde to Napoleon and Hitler and Stalin and, and so on. These rulers militarize their nations. They invade surrounding countries in order that they may steal that nation's resources and land and subjugate and kill their citizens. And if we were left on our own as individual citizens or individual families to provide for our own defense, we wouldn't stand a chance against such fierce, organized evil and aggression. So God gave government to form a military for the protection of humanity from the more egregious outbursts of human evil. Now again, this is the ideal. I recognize that in, fa- in this fallen world, there's often a, a gray area between good and evil. Is this nation acting for the good or are they acting for the evil? And it gets hard to tell sometimes. But the fact of the matter is that in a fallen world, humanity needs the protection of government. Third, God gave government for the prosperity of human society. Governments do things as a society which would be impossible for the individual to accomplish on his own. For example, they build infrastructure, roads, rails, bridges, etc. And they provide public utilities, water, electric, gas, waste removal, etc. And these things allow for economic development and affluence. They combat public health crises like diseases and epidemics like COVID-19. They establish regulations for public safety, like food laws and building codes. They regulate industry and markets in order to keep the economic playing field level and to ensure honesty and integrity in business and in advertising. They provide for the preservation and the flourishing of human arts and culture through the building of museums and art galleries and concert halls. They provide education and invest in research and development for the public good. They conserve and protect the environment, including the creation of national parks and wildlife preserves. And they perform many other essential functions that it would take us just too long to mention. Now, I I realize that there are, are some of us here who are probably of more libertarian bent, and and you would argue that many of these functions could be provided by the private sector and could be provided better if it were privatized. And you may be right. I freely admit that some governments, because of corruption and incompetence, fail their citizens in their responsibility of providing for the prosperity of human society. But I would argue That if you want to increase your gratitude for the United States government, go take a five-hour truck ride in Haiti. And you will never again complain about transportation taxes or environmental regulations or government overreach. God gave government in order that humanity may flourish even in a fallen world. And finally... God gave government for the provision of its weakest members. I would place this in the previous function of government under the heading, in our constitution at least, of provide for the general welfare. At its best, human government provides for the weakest members of society, for those who by virtue of physical or mental disability are unable to provide for themselves. Governments do this 
by means of a redistribution of wealth in the form of taxes for those who have and they redistribute from those who have and don't need to those who need and don't have. Now, I recognize that redistribution of wealth is kind of a dirty phrase in, in some circles, but I just submit to you that it's the underlying principle of taxation, right? It's not the same as socialism. It, at least it doesn't have to be. I'm not saying that a government should pay people to not be productive, nor am I saying that it should penalize those who are productive. Far from it. What I am saying, and I could back this up from the general welfare laws of ancient Israel in Deuteronomy 15, that the government should provide some form of social safety net that catches those citizens who are unable to provide for themselves without incentivizing laziness. Or enabling those who can work. Now again, the details of how this social safety net should function is a matter of debate. It's above my pay grade. But in an ideal society, I would say no one should starve who is unable to work. And no one should eat who is able yet refuses to work. And God gave government to see to it that both would occur. Now, these four positive functions of government, I would group together under what Paul refers to as the good, right? He, the governing authority, is God's minister to you for good. The governing authority are God's instruments of his common grace to humanity to set parameters for human behavior, protect humanity from egregious evil, promote the prosperity of human society and culture, and provide for the welfare of the weakest members of society. But Paul mentions one further role of government and of governing authorities. They punish evil. Look again at verse 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. All right? So not only is the governing authority God's instrument of common grace for humanity's good, he's also the agent of God's wrath for humanity's evil. He is the avenger, says Paul, who carries out God's wrath upon those who practice evil. This is the other side of the government's responsibility to set parameters for human behavior. It is also the government's God-ordained role to enforce those parameters by the threat of punishment. That the governing authority does not bear the sword in vain means that God has delegated to the government the authority to exact temporal punishment by the use of force up to and including death. Now this power of capital punishment was granted in principle all the way back in Genesis 9-6 when after the flood God told Noah in an instruction aimed at preventing the mess that had been wiped out in the flood, he said this, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And I want you to note very carefully that it is not the private citizen who bears the sword by God's decree. God has not ordained vigilantism. 
It is the state and only the state to whom God has delegated the authority to execute his wrath upon evil. The rule for private citizens, I would argue, is found in Romans 12, 19, where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But you may ask, does this mean that God's vengeance and wrath upon evil only awaits the final judgment? No, says Paul. For God has brought a measure of his wrath in vengeance into the present age as a restraint upon human evil. And he exercises that wrath by means of governing authorities. The threat of the sword keeps sin at bay and it allows for relative peace and prosperity even in a radically fallen world. And this too is an act of God's common grace. Now, we're going to stop there for today. We're going to pick up again next week and turn our attention to the Christian citizen's responsibility to government and the question of when and if there is a time for the Christian to resist that governing authority. This morning, though, I want to close with three thoughts on how we ought to respond to this morning's message. Thought number one, we should thank God for government. Now, I know there is probably none of us here who thinks that our government is all that it should be or all that it could be. All of us have concerns and complaints about the way in which it functions, but I still contend that any government is better than no government, and furthermore, our particular form of government is better than most, if not all, other forms of government that have been tried throughout the history of humankind. If I'm honest... I think this church, myself included, could do with a lot less suspicion, a lot less criticism, a lot less grumbling about our government, governing authorities, and with a lot more gratitude and a posture of submission. Government, according to Paul, is a blessing a gift of God's common grace. And therefore, as with all of God's good gifts, it must be received with thanksgiving and gratitude. Second, we should pray for our governing authorities and not just the ones we like, all of them. Paul wrote to Timothy, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Is that not the purpose of government as Paul has set it forth here, to provide for its citizens a peaceful and quiet life in order that we may live in all godliness? So we ought to pray that government would ordain its God-given function. This is another area in which I would say at First Baptist Nixon, we need to improve. We don't pray enough for our authorities, but the spiritual church does. Finally, we should submit to governing authority, which is the main command at the very head of this text. And this is going to be the topic next week, but as we close this morning, I want to whet your appetite just a bit. Paul could not be clearer in this passage that those 
in authority have their authority by God's design and decree. They are God's ministers who serve in God's stead. Therefore, if we rebel against them, we are rebelling against God himself. So I think in light of this text, we need to check the posture of our heart towards our government and ask, is it one of glad and grateful submission or is it one of resentful, suspicious resistance? The spiritual church and the spirit-filled Christian gladly and gratefully submits to its governing authorities until such a time comes when he can regretfully no longer do so for the sake of conscience and the word of God, a topic that we'll return to next week. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that this message has both formed our thoughts and also convicted us of areas in which our hearts are not submitted, where we are in resistance and grudging about something that you call a good gift. So Lord, convict us of our sin. Let us not be conformed to the pattern of this world that resents government, that defrauds government on its taxes, that grumbles against our governing authorities. Rather, let us be transformed by the renewing of our mind, a mind that now understands you've given these governing authorities for our good. And so, so long as we can, so long as it violates neither conscience nor the word of God, Let us be submissive to those governing authorities out of our obedience and our submission to you. May we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because we want to render to God the things that are God's. In Jesus' name I pray.